Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. We were pleased to produce the following news coverage of the movement for clemency in Indiana in conjunction with Indy Midtown Magazine. Quote, in an effort to generate awareness of the need to expand clemency for Indiana prisoners, activists will rally at 1.45 p.m. on Sunday, July 25th at Tarkington Park in Indianapolis. The center of attention will be the case of Leon Benson, who has been imprisoned by the Indiana Department of Corrections since 1998. Just 23, at the time of his sentencing for murder, he has consistently maintained his innocence. Benson's family has been on KiteLine before, talking about his situation. Together with the advocacy group IDOC Watch, Benson's family has organized the rally to ask for clemency in his case and for the general expansion of clemency for other Indiana prisoners. Along with Benson, the rally will highlight the experience of other prisoners, including Christopher Trotter and Aaron Isby Israel. All three men have participated in prisoners' rights protests throughout the decades they've been incarcerated. Isby Israel led a mass hunger strike in 1991 and then spent 28 years locked in solitary confinement. He won a federal lawsuit in 2018 that established that his decades in isolation violated his civil rights. The guard who testified against Isby Israel got him convicted of attempted murder and has since recanted his testimony and is expected to speak at Sunday's rally. In Indiana, clemency is managed by the executive branch, which has broad discretion. During his two terms, Mitch Daniels pardoned 62 people, while Governors Pence and Holcomb together have pardoned only 10 people. Clemency can consist of either pardons or commutations, which shorten or reduce sentences. Clemency is issued specifically in the case of elderly and infirm prisoners and to remedy past injustices. Isby Israel, Trotter, and Benson all have serious health conditions after decades either in isolation or on secure housing units. Clemency advocates point to Illinois and other states that expedited clemency procedures last year in order to reduce prison overcrowding during the COVID-19 pandemic. In July 2020, Isaiah Willoughby was arrested and federally charged with one count of arson in connection to a fire set at the Seattle Police Department East Precinct. This fire allegedly occurred during the height of the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone that encompassed several blocks surrounding the police precinct. In June 2021, Isaiah pled guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit arson. He has been in federal custody since summer 2020. On top of pandemic-related visitation closures, SeaTac FDC prison administrators have refused to answer emails or communicate with prisoner families around visitation. Isaiah's sentencing date is scheduled for October 4, 2021. You can write letters to him at Isaiah Willoughby, number 49960-086, FDC SeaTac, PO Box 13900, Seattle, Washington 98198, and follow Puget Sound Prisoner Support on Twitter at Puget Support to keep up with updates on Isaiah and others targeted by the state for their role in last year's uprising. We'll include the address for how to contact Willoughby on our website, kitelineradio.org. Lauren Reed has finally been freed from federal detention after more than a year facing charges for social media posts during the George Floyd uprising. Reed is a Diné activist in Arizona whose case we've covered previously on KiteLine. 
He and his lawyers were able to negotiate a non-cooperating plea deal in May, but he did not have his formal sentencing till this week. Ryan Fatika from the Tucson Anti-Repression Crew, which has organized public support for Reed, made the following statement. Quote, the FBI and the U.S. Attorney thought that railroading Lauren with a felony charge and prison time would be easy because they do it all the time. His case is part of a broader strategy the FBI and other law enforcement agencies are enacting across the country right now to incarcerate as many people as possible who participated in last year's protests and uprisings. What they didn't count on was Lauren's courage and our solidarity. Lauren was willing to face prison time rather than plead guilty, and while he sat in pretrial detention, people across the country and around the world expressed their solidarity with his resistance." Unquote. This week on KiteLine, we continue our conversation with prison abolitionist journalists Maya Shenoir and Victoria Law. We share the second half of our discussion on their recent book, Prison by Any Other Name, Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms. The book is an in-depth look at the various alternatives to prison that are held up as substitutes for incarceration, but which, in many cases, bring surveillance into our homes and communities. The alternatives mentioned in our discussion last week, electronic monitoring, probation, court-mandated psychiatric confinement or assisted outpatient treatments, and the sex offender registry, are just a few of the methods that they analyze in the book. For instance, Community policing often means overpolicing neighborhoods that are predominantly inhabited by people of color, leading to rising arrests and police harassment. This week, they talk about issues with the child welfare system, community policing, school resource officers, and tell us of possible abolitionist horizons. In your section called Policing Parenthood, you say that the prison industrial complex has invaded family life. Can you talk about the carceral methods that the state often uses under the mantle of saving children. You mentioned that often child welfare agencies and their caseworkers do want to help, but instead they end up punishing or controlling the people they're trying to help. I think that the family regulation system, otherwise known as Child Protective Services, but it's increasingly being referred to as the family regulation system by groups like Movement for Family Power and Dorothy Roberts, a scholar activist that we cite a lot in our book. This system is so misunderstood because I think much of the general public views it as an essential system to support and help children stay safe. But really, it is invading and oppressing children and families. And at this point, now we're seeing 37% of children in the United States experience a child services investigation by the time they're 18. And for Black children, that's 53%, so the majority of Black children. And similarly to criminal investigations, just the investigation part of this, so just the interrogating and searching and picking apart people's lives, all of that is incredibly disruptive. And of course, the consequence is sometimes actually taking people away. And in our book, Taking Children Away, Separating Them from Their Families, which is, I think, one of the most brutal punishments that can be inflicted in a society. So 
I think that one of the things that we have to keep in mind with this is it's, again, not based in actual safety. So most of the complaints that are filed with child services systems are not about abuse. They're mostly about neglect. And under neglect, mostly what's happening there is reports that have to do with poverty. So children not having enough to eat, not having housing, or not having housing that abides by the system's standards, maybe not having adequate clothing, all of those things. And so I think that when we look at that, instead of saying, oh, these terrible parents, of course, predominantly it's, it's working class and poor parents who are targeted, oh, these terrible parents, we should be thinking, why do we live in a society that is not providing these very, very basic resources for children. Like that should be something that is one of the most fundamental things that we're just supporting as a society. Like it's it's a social responsibility. But instead, the solution becomes taking children away and often placing them in a system that is abusive, by virtue of, of the fact that it's enacting this violence, tearing children away from their families, but also within foster care, within group homes, there's very high incidences of abuse. A lot of times when we hear about the prison system now, thanks to the work of Angela Davis and Michelle Alexander and so many people who have put the prison system in the context of slavery. Now there's more understanding of, okay, like the prison system as we know it evolved out of slavery, evolved out of Jim Crow, but the so-called child welfare system also evolved into a system of punishment as it began to mostly target black and native families. So the current system is also a legacy of slavery, indigenous genocide, colonization. When we look at these histories, children being pulled out of their families are fundamental aspects of that. So colonization always included settlers taking native children, forcing them to assimilate. In the 19th and 20th century, we saw native youth being separated from their families by residential schools. And after a, a really long-term activist effort by native women and other organizers, that system in its form that it had then was finally ended. But we see its legacy in the foster system. We see the legacy of slavery in the foster system. And so I think we need to be looking at it in the context of racism and white supremacy as well. Can you talk a little bit about community policing and specifically neighborhood policing initiatives? I thought your example of Kay and Brooklyn was really helpful in showing how neighborhood policing doesn't necessarily build public safety as it claims. Sure. I mean, what we're seeing or what we were seeing over the past few years was a shift or a growing shift in this idea that rather than having super militaristic policing, we would be able to somehow fix the racism 
in policing by having neighborhood policing initiatives. So the idea is that neighborhood policing would be the same police officers patrolling the same areas and getting to know the residents. So rather than it being officer one on Monday, officer two on Tuesday, officer 500 on Wednesday, it would be the same officers patrolling the areas, getting to know residents, getting to know business owners, and getting to know the neighborhood with the idea that building these kinds of connections would improve relationships, would lessen police violence, would also build trust with the community. And what we see, and this may work in uh, more affluent, not very policed communities, but what we're seeing in communities, mostly black, brown, immigrant, low-income communities, is that it means that the same officers are again and again surveilling, monitoring, threatening, and often terrorizing people in these neighborhoods. So uh, we interviewed several people who live in low-income Black neighborhoods. And the, again and again, they talked about how it didn't matter if it was the same police going into the neighborhoods over and over to patrol. It just meant that the same police would stop them, would demand their identifications, would tell them to disperse if they were standing outside their building or sitting on a park bench, would ask for their identification, would beat them up, would threaten them with arrest, even though they hadn't done anything. And it doesn't do anything to necessarily address the fact that policing is a very racist institution, and it is not meant to provide safety for all members of society, regardless of who they might be, and instead are meant to contain and control situations, communities, and the people within them. In one instance, we interviewed a man who asked that his name not be used. So we just used this initial K. And he and a friend had gathered in Brooklyn for a candlelighting ceremony for a friend who had been killed by police several months before. And when they left the apartment, they noticed that there were cops of various types, including the neighborhood police officers who are supposed to be officer-friendly, who patrol the neighborhood and are supposed to know who they are, you know, and build relationships with them around the block. And so they walked to a different block and suddenly they were surrounded by police officers who, instead of viewing them as a group of young people in the neighborhood, which is not illegal, a group of young people coming out of a building, which is also not illegal, a group of young people who live in that neighborhood, again, not illegal, basically treated them as if they were some super threat. They surrounded them. They grabbed somebody. When Kay and his friends pulled out their phones and started filming, they were ordered to stop and to step onto the sidewalk. Kay complied with stepping onto the sidewalk, but he kept recording. He would not put his phone away. And the officer began pushing him. And when Kay tried to record his badge number, he was thrown onto the ground and then tightly handcuffed and brought to the police precinct. And when he was driven to the police precinct, he repeatedly told the officers that his hands were numb from the handcuffs being put on too tightly, which is not uncommon when police want to further punish somebody whom they are arresting. And when I interviewed him two weeks later, his wrists were still black and blue with scrapes still showing. And he had a round scar the size of a dollar coin on his shoulder from where the police had attacked him. And even though he had done nothing illegal or had not done anything that should be illegal, he was charged with obstruction of justice, which meant that then he had an arrest on his record. He had to go back and forth to court, which is a pain at any given time because it disrupts your day. You have to like go take a day off from 
work, school, caregiving commitments, whatever you were doing to sit in a courtroom and wait for your name to be called for, and you could be sitting there for hours on end. And oftentimes you're simply told to just come back a month from now. And keep in mind that his case was ongoing when we interviewed him, but for other people who are targeted for harassment and arrest again and again and again, even if their case is thrown out in court later on or the charges are dismissed, that arrest stays on their record. And so somebody can say, well, this was a bad kid. This was a bad person because they have so many arrests on their record. And there's no context given to the fact that they have so many arrests on their record because they live in a neighborhood that is over-policed and in which police are constantly stopping and finding excuses to arrest people in those neighborhoods, which then gives them a much longer record than people who are in communities which are not severely policed and in which police are not incentivized to go after people as if they are some sort of, you know, mafia dons or something like that. Can you talk about policing in school? Uh, In your book, you mentioned Parkland and how, as you put it, quote, expansions of the prison industrial complex tend to flare up in the wake of devastating, highly politicized acts of violence, unquote which does lead to more school resource officers, which tends to negatively impact students of color. This is such intense timing because my school, the high school I went to, is actually voting today on whether or not to retain its school resource officers. And (laughs) I've been thinking about it a lot in the context of how this all arose, the police were actually added to my school when I was in high school. I was in high school when Columbine happened and police were being introduced into a lot of schools during that time. And also we had a school shooting, much smaller one around the time of Columbine. And the police were introduced in response to that. And a lot of times this is something that we see happen, that police are introduced in response to a school shooting like Parkland, like a national level event where people are reacting and they're saying, of course, the answer is more police in schools. But in fact, there's no evidence that police in schools makes anyone safer. There's a good report from the Justice Policy Institute covering some of this research, and it shows that what really reduces violence in schools is relationship building, including between parents and faculty and students and staff. And of course, this is something that we see across the board, that what builds safety is building relationships. But that's completely minimized when it comes to these campaigns to introduce police and maintain police in schools, as well as surveillance and monitoring devices like metal detectors and those types of tools. And we saw over the first part of the 21st century, school policing increased really drastically. And that was partially due to all the federal funding that was channeled into it. And this was a misguided response to school shootings. It was also a parallel to mass incarceration and intensified policing and all of the ways in which those things were building and building 
But of course, it resulted in more violence because wherever we have police, we have violence. Wherever you see police, they are going to be targeting youth of color. So yeah, putting police in schools means putting instruments of violence in schools and fueling the school to prison pipeline, but also routinely harassing and assaulting students of color in schools. They're using pepper spray and tasers. They are body slamming students. And beyond this, of course, we see that having police in the school makes it more likely that students are going to be arrested and funneled into the school to prison pipeline. And it also makes it more likely that teachers and staff, instead of using their relationships and the tools available to them that have to do with actually relating to a person instead of they're going to be more likely to call the police putting police into schools means you're introducing a, a mode of state violence into schools particularly targeting black youth and youth of color and Police are arresting students, but they are also targeting them in other ways. They're harassing them on a daily basis. They're assaulting them. They are beating them and pepper spraying them and tasering them. And I think that we need to acknowledge these day-to-day realities the same way we acknowledge the school-to-prison pipeline and the fact that Having police in schools means that students will inevitably be arrested. But we also do need to recognize that reality of arrest and recognize the fact that people who work in schools are more likely to call the police if the police are right there in the schools. So instead of dealing with problems on a relational level, like just the level of person to person, police are more likely to be used as a resource if police exist in the schools. And of course, they're not actually a resource. They are an instrument of state violence. Ultimately, our our book is pointing toward abolition and not just abolition of prison, but abolition of all these extensions of the punitive carceral state in all of its disguises. And the steps away from from that punitive carceral state are really, really wide ranging. So we're taking after the abolitionist scholar activist, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who is encouraging us to change everything, that abolition is about changing one thing, which is everything. (laughs) And so we're pointing toward a society that is someplace where things look completely different. There is good housing for all. There is a robust healthcare system for everyone, education that's well-resourced for everyone recreational opportunities, the arts, 
this future that is about abundance instead of austerity and punishment and isolation and minimization. Lastly, you mentioned the concept of no somewhere else. You say that the question is not, can prisons go away, but how do we make them go away? Could you spell out a few alternatives? As Maya said, we need to be thinking about abundance and not austerity, because we do have enough to go around as evidenced by the ridiculously large budgets that policing and prisons are given every year. But we also have to think about getting rid of this logic of replacement. So we cannot take out this giant block of 2.1 or 2.2 million people behind physical bars and walls and try to find another giant block to replace them. Instead, what we need to be looking at is what are the ways in which we can strengthen communities and families and individuals so that they can not only survive, but thrive in the society. We do have some ways in which people are doing this now on smaller scales. We talked about the fact that there are nearly half a million kids in foster care, and there have been these dramatic increases due to the fact that parents are unable to provide for their families, or sometimes parents need a break. So we have alternative programs that could be maybe not expanded to be as gigantic as half a million children, but you know to be more prevalent so that people aren't in these dire situations of poverty or feeling like they're overwhelmed and might you know, do something harmful to their children. Connecticut has a program called Minding the Baby in which trained nurses come and help new parents out when they have new babies because they understand that they are lacking sleep, they're overwhelmed, they're exhausted. They suddenly have this, the demands of a new baby that really needs to be met. And instead of coming from this place of punishment, like, oh, you're, you know, you are not doing X, Y, or Z. We're going to call child welfare officials and we're going to take the child away and we're going to make you jump through hoops. They provide the support to say like, what do you need? You know, like, what do you need in order to be able to provide for this child? In Champaign-Urbana in Illinois, there's a crisis nursery, which pre-pandemic provided emergency childcare 24 hours a day. So it meant that if you had to go to the hospital or, you know, like there was a family emergency or something where you could not bring your child or you got arrested, say, you know, like there was a safe place where there could be childcare for your child 24 hours a day. So you didn't have to risk leaving them at home or leaving them in your car or something else. And so instead of punishing people for not having resources, we should be looking at identifying what resources people and their communities need and then how to build those resources. The same thing with psychiatric confinement. There's this idea that people must receive treatment and that they cannot address their needs without any sort of professionals, that we cannot build our own safety and support. And we see in small pockets of the country, people have been able to build their own support systems and their own support networks to figure out what works for them and what their family, whether it's chosen or biological, their friends and their community can do so that they don't reach a crisis point. And again, we're not giving resources or attention to these models. And instead, what we're looking at constantly is this punishment model. So I think what we need to do is say, like, how do we create our own safety and support? And what works for me in New York City might not work for you in Bloomington. What works for you in Bloomington might not work for Maya in Chicago. So it's not a one-size-fits-all solution, but we have to look at it as what Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls not an aspirational adventure, but as an already accumulated set of encounters and awarenesses and activities that are happening 
and we can draw from those and build our own safety and our own support and our own survival. This has been KiteLine. We encourage you to listen to last week's episode with Shenoir and Law on our website, kitelineradio.org. If you want to support our work, please go to patreon.com forward slash kitelineradio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.